what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Tuesday, November 9th. Got a big storm coming in tomorrow. I'm sitting here watching Jeopardy. Well, it's actually ending right now. And I gotta say, they call Wheel of Fortune, you know, the show that comes after Jeopardy, they call it America's Game Show or something to that effect. Wheel of Fortune is trash compared to Jeopardy. I'm sorry. Anyways... Beautiful day, got in a nice Nordic ski in the morning, had a mix of rainbows and blowing ice and snow, blizzard conditions, sunshine, good afternoon at work. So here we are. Anyways, I want to talk mainly today about uh, Ecuador, where we are seeing a state of emergency, economic breakdown, and potential rise in street violence, following criminal violence and violence based on basically Ecuador becoming somewhat of a narco state. So I'll I'll get into all of that. I also want to briefly touch on Boeing. (laughs) Boeing having, you know, honestly, if you had to list one super important company over the last decade that has done well in the stock market, but has done horribly in safety. Yeah, probably Boeing. And I'd imagine Boeing's image is going to struggle to recover after just another incident that almost could have ended in a complete disaster for passengers. But first, yesterday I was mad at Democrats waiting too long to basically try to either give Biden advice or respond to Biden's struggling poll numbers. Well, today, I am extremely frustrated with Elise Stefanik, congresswoman, well, highest ranking congresswoman on the Republican side, also youngest to hold that position. She kind of took Liz Cheney's job, you know, when Liz Cheney told the truth. Elise Stefanik used to be a neoconservative, kind of center-right person that thought the party needed to evolve, become more welcoming to immigrants and suburban women and communities of color. Now she's retweeting great replacement theory stuff, focusing on the border, leading the Biden witch hunt, and also has become a staunch supporter of Donald Trump. Tim Miller has a good book called Why We Did It. Tim Miller is now kind of a center-left podcast commentator and analyst, but he started off as pretty much a Republican hatchet job guy, like the guy who would help run campaigns, take names, get the dirt on opponents. And he worked for Jeb Bush during the 2016 elections. Obviously, Jeb did not do well, but he was also part of the Republican Party's 2012 revitalization effort to kind of redefine the party's platform and move forward and bring in more voters. The reason I bring this up is because Tim Miller worked with Elise Stefanik on this, and both of them at the time seemed to be on somewhat of the same page that basically the party needs to be more welcoming to women, minorities, people of color, all of that jazz. Obviously, it's not a spoiler at this point to say that 2016 kind of changed that plan a little bit. And anyways, in Why We Did It, I remember reading it on an airplane to Spain, and Tim Miller talks a lot about how she just seems like a striver, and she went from never Trump to, like, some say maybe his VP candidate for 2024. And the reason is is because he kind of argues that once she kind of got in front of the crowds at a Trump rally and saw how much of a celebrity she could be and how quickly she could take Liz Cheney's place and become the most powerful woman on the Republican side of the House. She didn't want to stop. So she's one of these smart people who saw Trumpism as her moment, her vacuum, 
to gain more power. And I want to play this little clip from Meet the Press on Sunday where Elise Stefanik sits down uh, with Welker on, on Meet the Press and basically is asked, okay, on January 6, 2020, or after January 6, 2021, you were very against the violence, you condemned what happened, but now she is calling the January 6 criminals hostages. And, of course, she deflects to Biden. Of course, she does a whataboutism. This is just a woman who is morally inept and ethically devoid of reason, and it's very disappointing to see. So let's play this clip, and you'll probably understand why I'm furious. President Trump, but staying on this issue of January 6th, because, of course, Mr. Trump was talking about this as well. This weekend, we did mark the... (laughs) Which he's talked about for, what, three years now? Sorry. ...year anniversary, and I want to pause for a minute and play some of the comments that you made on the evening of that day. Let's take a look. This has been a truly tragic day for America. Americans will always have the freedom of speech and the constitutional right to protest, but violence in any form is absolutely unacceptable. It is anti-American and must be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. In terms of what we're hearing today, former President Trump has referred to January 6th as a, quote, beautiful day. Just this weekend, he referred to some of those who are serving time for having stormed the Capitol as, quote, hostages. Do you still feel as though that day was tragic and that those who were responsible should be held responsible to the fullest extent of the law? Well, first of all, Kristen, as typical for NBC and the biased media, you played one excerpt of my speech. I stand by my comments that I made on the House floor. I stood up for election integrity and I... (laughs) Sorry, they are all biased, but she goes on Newsmax and Fox and stuff. But of course, they're not biased, you know and objected to the certification of the state of Pennsylvania because of the unconstitutional overreach. So I absolutely stand by my floor speech. I am proud to support President Trump. And I want to correct another statement you made that there is no coordination with Joe Biden and the Department of Justice in prosecutions against President Trump. We just saw Hunter Biden defy a congressional subpoena and the White House admitting it was in coordination with Joe Biden the morning of. That is coordination. And I believe that Joe Biden will be found to be the most corrupt president in our nation's history. And that's why all of the investigative work that we're doing is so, so important because the American people, they deserve transparency and accountability. A lot to unpack there. Of course, the White House has said that Hunter Biden is acting unilaterally on the issue of election integrity, though. As you know, Trump took his case to court more than 60 times that there was fraud. He didn't win. But I want to get back to this key question. Do you still think it was a tragic day? Do you think that the people who stormed the Capitol should be held responsible to the full extent of the law. I have concerns about the treatment of January 6 hostages. Uh, I have concerns. We have a role in Congress of oversight over our treatment. There she said it, guys. January 6 hostages. To prisoners, uh, and I believe that we're seeing the weaponization of the federal government against not just President Trump, but we're seeing it against conservatives, we're seeing it against Catholics, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so proud to serve on the Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Government, because... The funny thing is, we actually are seeing a, a lot of rise in hate crimes towards Muslims and the Jewish community. I don't know if Catholics are the most marginalized, marginalized sorry, community in the country right now, but I digress. 
The American people want answers. They want transparency. And they understand that as you look across this country, there seems to be two sets of rules. If your last name is Clinton or it's Biden, you get to live by a different set of rules than if you're an everyday patriotic American. And if your name's Donald Trump, you can take classified documents to Mar-a-Lago, defy a federal subpoena, and say nothing's wrong with it, and the whole party defends you. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to end, but this clip just pisses me off so much. And, and I guess I will also add that it seems clear to me now that Trump and a lot of Republicans, like, like Elise Stefanik, they are just trying to completely rewrite January 6th. And honestly, the reason why she wants to rewrite it actually makes more sense to me. Because, again, and I talked about this a little bit with the Claudine Gay stuff, where she was seeming to kind of hope that institutions like Harvard would stick with Gay and, uh, and protect her. Because then she could argue that there's a lot of hypocrisy on the left and in the mainstream establishments. So this is why she defends Trump. It's a way to equivocate. And in this case, I think she needs to find a way to downplay what happened on that day. God, I sound like Dr. Seuss. But you get my point, is that if she can downplay the events of that day, it's easier for her to brush away the things she did with Trump, who leaves us all in dismay. And... That just seems to be the case with the Lindsey Graham types as well. And, and, and these are the intellectual MAGA people that worry me. <laughs> Lauren Boebert has never particularly worried me. Marjorie Taylor Greene worries me with, the, with her rhetoric, but not with her actual actions. So anyways, a despicable, despicable clip as always. Anyways, let's talk about Ecuador. And I've been going back and forth on whether I start with the background or the recent events. And we're going to start with the recent events. I encourage people to go back and listen to my August, I think it was August 14th episode, where I talk about an assassination of a presidential candidate in Ecuador. But we will go through some of that at the end. But basically, let's get into what's going on. So of course, my, my favorite publication, The Economist, has a good, it's part of their daily headline update section. And they have a piece that says here in quotes, Armed men broke into a state-owned TV studio and interrupted a live broadcast in Ecuador, prompting Daniel Noboa, the president, to recognize, in quotes, an internal armed conflict. The Economist talks about how this is the latest incident, in quotes, in a wave of violence that has terrorized the country since Sunday, after, after the leaders of Los Choneros gang apparently escaped from prison. On Monday, President Noboa declared a state of emergency. So, a little background on this is... Daniel Noboa is pretty new to being president of Ecuador, and basically the country has seen a huge influx of cocaine trafficking, criminal activity, and it's, de it's destabilizing not only Ecuador, but just a lot of northern South America, which <laughs> sounds like an oxymoron when I say it, but you know, everywhere from Colombia now to Ecuador and obviously in Mexico. And Mexican cartels are actually getting into the Ecuadorian market. And also gangs are battling for control in jails. And the situation is really volatile. So he, much like other presidents we have seen in the region, he has pledged to respond with, I don't want to say an iron fist, but very heavy handed, which I guess is an iron fist. He's, he's pledged to hit back at the rising crime, and he faces just an extremely intense uphill battle, and 
there are kidnappings of police, bombings, political assassinations. Just to add some numbers to this, basically, I think it's safe to say that the coronavirus pandemic, so 2020 on, it has kind of been an inflection point in a lot of Latin America and a lot of South America, and it's battered the economy, and it's been a huge detriment to just trans- transformative public policy, to the international dilemma that a lot of the, a lot of these countries face, and the pandemic just worsened everything. And Reuters put, puts out some numbers that are pretty troubling. It writes, violent deaths nationally rose to 8,008 in 2023, nearly double 4,500 in 2022. Ecuador's presidential contest last year was marred by the assassination of the anti-corruption candidate, which I'll talk about later. And the government blames the situation on the growing reach of cocaine trafficking gangs. And then the article later talks about how basically Ecuador's prisons are almost becoming like districts for gangs to get reach and clout, making it actually hard to, well, I guess, create accountability for criminal activity. But it's also not only recruiting grounds for gangs, but also places where law enforcement is actually at risk at well. And the state, Ecuador, has had a pretty weak control and ability to, to, to basically control these prisons and bring the rule of law back to them. And so prison violence is expanding, and there's been hundreds of deaths in incidents that are pretty much blamed on gangs that are battling to control the jails. So, by the way, if you're, if you're a foreigner, well, the State Department has said not to go to Ecuador, so I would recommend to any of my friends who are thinking about a, a fun little South American trip, probably don't go there right now. But either way, if you're traveling to Ecuador, don't end up in one of their jails. That's just a friendly word of advice. Anyways, President Naboa took office in November. So obviously, what I don't even know what day or year. Yeah, it's about three, three months ago. And he was touting something known as the Phoenix Plan. And basically, he just wants to expand security and expand the state's control over national security in order to maybe bolster the reaction to what's going on with the the gang and criminal activity that we're seeing. And so the Phoenix Plan looks at building new intelligence units, giving uh, security forces better weapons, what they call tactical weapons. They also want to pretty much remodel prisons and bring in new high security technology. And also they want to reinforce security at ports and airports where drug trafficking can take place. Again, these are good ideas. But from my understanding of Ecuador, the state right now just does not quite have the apparatus to do a lot of this. And like I said, at the end, I'll talk more about the candidate that was assassinated last year. But he was literally a journalist that was trying to expose corruption and they got to him. He couldn't even be protected by the current state security system. So not a great look. But anyways, getting into more of the details of this recent iteration, I guess you could say. Basically, police said on Sunday that there's a guy named Adolfo Macias, who is leader of Los Choneros, which is the criminal gang I talked about. And he had disappeared from prison, from the prison where he was serving a 34-year sentence. And basically, authorities are scramming 
and just trying to gather resources to find him. <laughs> when, when I read a line in an article that says he disappeared from the prison, I feel like in this type of situation, it's either he got killed or he escaped. And honestly, when you talk about how broken these prisons are and how violent they are, it would not at all be surprising to me that he just, and Los Choneros, the gang itself, just got to security in the prison, paid him off, and he got out. I mean, we've seen El Chapo, Guzman, and others in Mexico do this all the time, so that would not surprise me at all. But anyways, authorities are trying to track him down, and while this is happening over the last week, there were incidents of violence in like, in like half a dozen prisons starting yesterday, and you actually saw situations across the country where you had hundreds of guards and just prison staff being taken hostage by the prisoners, which again, not a great look if you're trying to say we have a good law and order justice system here. And so anyways, that's Monday. By Tuesday, apparently violence had then seeped over into the streets. You had seven police officers kidnapped, five explosions confirmed in several cities. So far, they're not talking about any injuries, but my initial take here, and maybe this is a hot take, sometimes you got to put them out when, you see, when you're just looking at what's written. I would argue this kind of is starting to look like the early days of the cartel dominance in Mexico, where you see somewhat of a destabilization of the state, a lack of control over securities um, and, the, and the rule of law and force. And in my, in my foreign policy classes, we always talked about how a state has to have the monopoly on violence. And sometimes that's kind of a sinister way to put it, but it's something that's very true, is that a state needs to have a monopoly on the control of violence. And if you have multiple different actors fighting for that monopoly of control, it's going to lead to internal chaos and what we're seeing now. And so going back to President Naboa, he is now declaring a 60-day state of emergency. Again, emergency powers, like in many countries, including our own, they can unlock specific rights given to the executive. And so Reuters notes, in this case, this is, in quotes, a tool used by his predecessor, Guillermo Lasso, to little success. But it will allow him to enable military patrols, including in prisons, and he can set a national nighttime curfew. So it's, it's unfortunately looking like a pretty volatile situation right now. And so I want to go backwards a little bit just to kind of explain to you guys why it's led to this, or at least try to. <laughs> so I, I guess what I would start by saying is that if you asked me 20 years ago, I mean, I wouldn't have been thinking about this stuff 20 years ago <laughs> by any means. But anyways... If you asked me 20 years ago what the trajectory was going to be like for a lot of Latin America, I would have said good. The region experienced waves of democratization, and it was pretty unprecedented for the reason. And it was really good news because, of course, I still think democracy along with free and fair elections, global trade, regulated capitalism are some of the best ways to lift people out of poverty and improve education for all. I also think private contracts are also important for protecting rights and property. There's a good book on that that actually talks about why capitalism fails, for example, in Latin America and succeeds in the United States and other countries such as that. Its argument is that 
Basically, there's not a historical process that involves creating private contracts and agreements and protecting property. And so basically, this allows abuse and a muddled view of what actually it means to have private access to something. That's another story. Hernando de Soto, The Mystery of Capital, great book. He just argues that most of the assets in Western nations have kind of been like integrated into a formal representation system such as private contracts, but you don't see that happening in countries where informal economies function. And I would argue that countries like Ecuador have been victims of that. And of course, Ecuador was a success story from like 2000 to 2010-ish because it used oil rents, huge oil revenue as well to improve life and they could they that led to a boom in housing, a boom in just revenue that was able to help the average citizen. But as we know, the resource curse is a problem and it's not sustainable. Oil prices fluctuate, and also there are other countries with just more access to cheaper oil. So that's where we're at. And so unfortunately, it seems like Ecuador like specifically, as well as countries like Venezuela, I would argue were not able to kind of adjust to the world as it was, and they thought of the world as it ought to be. And instead of trying to reform, countries like Ecuador kind of became something parallel to a narco state, or at least a state that was open to informal economies. And in this case, the informal economy was, well, drugs. And it's not surprising when you look at just how a lot of Latin America has been impacted by drugs. And that's a larger issue that I don't have time to tackle today. On demand, the war on drugs, Western desire for drugs and how they can be made cheaply in places like this. But anyways, we've seen violence and illiberalism grow in Ecuador, like I said, mainly after COVID. And back in August, The Economist had a good piece. And it noted that Ecuador was the last place they thought that would be hit. But the article talks about how Fernando Villavencio, who was running for president, was shot dead on August 9th. He was leaving an event at a school in downtown Quito, which is the capital of Ecuador. Nine other people were injured, including, including a congressional candidate. And Villavencio was a former journalist that was actually known for exposing corruption scandals and he was really big under the government of Rafael Correa, which was the presidency of Ecuador from 2007 to 2017. And even after he tried to help bring down the Correa um, government, he continued to be a very good journalist even after getting into politics. He was first a congressman and then was, resi- uh, then was running as a presidential candidate. And he had been campaigning on combating corruption and wanted to renegotiate deals with foreign oil and mining companies to basically secure a bigger share. He was vocal on the need to tackle rising crime in the country and was determined to combat Colombian and Mexican drug cartels. And I think that gets us to probably where we're at now, which is that he dies and it probably helps some of the political class in Ecuador realize that this is a serious issue. And now you have President Naboa trying to follow in suit. But the problem here is that it seems like corruption is pretty much embedded in Ecuador. And so it's going to be extremely difficult to actually get rid of that. So of course, I send my, I guess you could say thoughts and prayers 
to Naboa and his government. But th- this is a country that is just suffering from kind of its version of late-stage capitalism, the resource curse, the war on drugs, and just kind of the changing global dynamics. All right, so if you guys have listened to me for a while, I traveled a lot for quite some time. (laughs) A lot of long international flights, a lot of localized international flights, a lot of flights in the United States. And airline travel is always something on the top of my mind, less so now because I'm not traveling. Hopefully, sooner than later, I will be back on that trend. But for now, I do look at flights. And I'll never forget, my mom and I were flying back to Chicago, I want to say early 2022. And it was the first time I ever got on one of Boeing's 737 MAX planes. And this was after, in 2018 and 2019, you know, they had those crashes, those two main crashes, where there was one, I think, in Ethiopia. I think the other one was in Malaysia, if I recall correctly. And both of those killed everyone on board. And then there were all the issues about their software on the planes and how they were too quick to rush it. Blah, 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 blah. So I get on this plane and I'm just going, fuck, I thought I could go my whole life without being on one of these. And I was told, you know, they've changed, they've gotten better, they fly. Honestly, the interior was pretty nice. We got to Chicago fine. Had to go through Denver, which is an abomination of an airport, but... That's a whole other, (laughs) excuse me, uh, story. But basically, I haven't been thinking about the safety of planes lately until last weekend when basically 10 minutes into an Alaskan Airlines flight that was going from Portland to Ontario in California, Southern California, there was a plug in the frame of one of the spare emergency doors and it broke off. And... This sounds like literally one of my actual nightmares. I've had nightmares of something similar to this, not specifically one of the plugs, but something similar of of being in a plane crash in one of my nightmares. And basically what happened is headrests were ripped off. Apparently a shirt was even reportedly flying off of a young boy. One of the people interviewed was like, I knew something was wrong when all of a sudden all of the oxygen masks were dropping. And basically what happened is a giant plug popped off and fell and landed in Portland, Oregon, and the plane had to do an emergency landing. And it was surprising because no one was killed or seriously injured, which is very surprising and (laughs) very good for Boeing and for the people on board. But it is just the nightmare scenario where it's terrifying on a human level, but also just as an organization like Boeing, this is really bad for them. And as I said earlier, they've had a pretty bad recent history. And this plane, by the way, that this plug popped off last weekend, this was on a Boeing 737 MAX, which obviously in 2018 and 2019, there were the two separate crashes that led to 346 people dying. And according to The Atlantic, that fiasco, the 2018 and 2019 ones, uh, cost the company more than $20 billion, and also they had reputational damage, and their planes were grounded for nearly two years. And over the week, over last weekend, hundreds of these planes were grounded, and it kind of caused air travel chaos again. And the Atlantic article I was reading, it released a note that a Boeing spokesperson shared with The Atlantic. And it was um, one that two Boeing executives wrote. And the letter said here in quotes, the safety of our airplanes and everyone who steps on board is a core Boeing value. Mm. I guess. 
And, and the note continues, we agree with and fully support the FAA's decision to require immediate inspections of 737-9 MAX airplanes with the same configuration as the affected airplane. And apparently, even though we haven't heard of other plugs popping off, um, apparently there were warning lights seen in dozens of other MAX planes over the same weekend. So they're investigating. And I think the bigger conversation here is that Boeing has received a lot of criticism over the last decade or so for basically prioritizing profits, stock performance over safety. And now I'm not going to go out and say Boeing doesn't care about safety, but it does seem like they're cutting corners. And time and time again, they are seeing issues like this. And I guess, I guess the big conversation here is that you can't really be profitable and successful when you also are having safety issues. I forget who said it, but someone was basically like, a business has to focus on profit, but also focus on safety. They have to coexist because, especially in the airline industry, a small safety issue can lead to hundreds of deaths. And this is troubling. And, and Boeing's done this time and time again, and, and at least the early investigations and a lot of the theories they have on how this happened is that some of the screws on this plug were just not tight. They were loose, like inspections did not go well. So this also tells me it's not just the manufacturing, but it's also the, the inspections before the plane takes off. And maybe we just need more rigorous inspections by the FAA, for example, and just we need more transportation guidelines. But at the same time, I also think Boeing needs to be in the spotlight here. And, and the sad thing is, is that I think Boeing will mainly respond because its shares are tumbling again. Yahoo Finance wrote yesterday that Boeing shares tumbled 8% after U.S. authorities grounded many 737 MAX jets in the wake of its mid-air fuselage blowout. Also, the fuselage maker Spirit Aero, Aero Systems, its shares sank more than 10%. And so anyways, again... Profits must coexist with safety, and it seems like Boeing is having some serious issues doing that. And now the other thing, I think, it, I think why Boeing specifically needs to be held under a spotlight and it needs to be scrutinized is that, yes, this is a private company, but this is also a company that has rallied the government for subsidies and, buy, and bailouts and everything else under the sun for years. And there's a lot of interesting literature online about how Boeing is technically a private company, but it's kind of becoming, a, becoming also a government-funded entity as well. We also have to remember that during the COVID pandemic, Boeing's stocks were dropping. It was in the red, and obviously it was going to do worse just because air travel was being limited because of the pandemic. And the federal government put aside about $17 billion for Boeing alone to basically incentivize it to stay afloat. And of course, this didn't go to production, inspections, better manufacturing. It went to those at the top to incentivize leadership. And I have a problem with this on a myriad of levels. And actually on the old podcast, I remember Drew and I talked about this a little bit, but I don't like how a private company that is having a lot of safety questions is also getting government money. And at the same time, it's sometimes a public safety risk, even though the government, which is funded by taxpayers, is helping keep it afloat during financial times, but it's not actually putting that money into making the company better. So I have some serious issues with that. And of course, politicians want to keep Boeing alive. I understand the Chicago-based company is 
huge. It's important. It's 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 important from national security to air travel to just like consumerism in general. But when you have a company that does get a lot of money from the government and a company that is highly used at at most of our airports or almost all of our airports, it needs to be scrutinized. And we're running out of time here, but what I will just say is Boeing's really lucky in this one. Extremely lucky in this one. And I hope that they pay some penalties for this and have to go forward in a different way. That is, that is all I can say on this one at this time. But anyways, um, that's going to do it for today. Lots going on in the world. Probably tomorrow or the next day, I am going to need to cover what's going on in Gaza. Secretary Blinken is back. And he's pretty much just been on a nonstop tour of trying to keep the United States and voters happy, trying to stop Israel from going too far, trying to find some sort of peace deal, quietly kind of calling for a ceasefire. Like, it's a mess. And then you have Secretary Austin as well that apparently was hospitalized without a lot of people knowing about it. It turns out it looks like he had a surgery for prostate cancer, and it looks like something happened with the surgery that put him into the ICU for a little bit. It brought up a lot of questions about the chain of command because even Biden didn't know that he'd been hospitalized, and I think there's conversations to be had about that. So maybe tomorrow we'll look at U.S. foreign policy and what's also going on in Gaza and Israel. So for now, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios.